Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we are happy to have you here this week. We've got a great guest. I'm going to leave the introductions to our host, Ian Cron. But before I turn it over to Ian, I want to invite you to join the conversation on social media by following Ian at Ian Morgan Cron and Typology Podcast, that's T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y Podcast, on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Let us know what you think about this week's episode, and don't forget to share it with your friends using the hashtag Typology Podcast. And if you like the show, please pop on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We really, really appreciate your listenership. Again, we've got a great guest today, so enjoy the episode. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hey, Typology listeners, Ian Morgan Cron here, your host. And today, I am so delighted to bring back my rabbi, uh, Evan Moffick. Uh, many of you will remember when we began Typology, Evan was you know, an important presence and voice for us. And it's been a long time and I'm excited to have him back to catch up, but also to hear about some of the really important things he's doing and writing about. Let me tell you about my rabbi, Evan Moffick. Um, he's a renowned author. He's a Jewish scholar. He is an Enneagram three, AKA the performer, uh, to prove it. Not that any, not that other types couldn't do this, but He's a high honors graduate of Stanford University. He's the youngest rabbi of a major congregation in the United States. And for our sake, you know, or for our purposes today, he loves and uses the Enneagram to support his own journey toward personal transformation and as a tool uh, in, in his work with, with other people as well. Rabbi, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Ian. So great to be back. And you know, the show really took off after I got off the first few episodes. I wonder if there's a connection with that. I don't yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I sincerely doubt it. Uh, people are tuning in to see, is he coming back this week? God, I hope so. <laughs> All right, so you have a brand new uh, book out, right? In January of 2019, it dropped. Tell everybody the title and then tell me where the title comes from. Well, the title is First the Jews combating the world's longest running hate campaign. And it's about anti-Semitism, which is such a timely topic, which is really hostility and hatred of Jews. And the title comes from two sources. First of all, it comes from the Gospels, where Paul says, first the Jews, and Paul is talking about outreach for Jesus followers. But I'm using the title as first the Jews in that the hate that starts against Jews never ends with Jews, mm. that when a society has anti-Semitism, we know that they really discriminate against others as well. So I'm looking at anti-Semitism, but I'm also looking at it as a window into all the other forms of racism and discrimination that we're seeing around in our country and around the world. Amazing. And here's what people are thinking right now. What on earth does this have to do with the Enneagram? Right. Great topic. But we expect to hear this on uh, NPR, you know, on uh, kind of a, a podcast or something like that. So before we even get going, I want to say here's why I'm talking about this today. 
uh, at least if for the first part of our show. Number one, I don't care what Enneagram type you are, or even if you're interested in the Enneagram or not, this is a vitally important topic. Number two, I love what you just said, that uh, anti-Semitism in, in, in some ways is a barometer of uh, the sentiment of hatred and discrimination and bigotry, whatever we say, or racism. It's just a barometer of the state of uh, where people are at and, and about their their views of difference, right? Uh, their, uh, their lack of appreciation or appreciation for difference, right? So fantastic. We all need to know about it. So that's, we're going to get into the Enneagram people, so don't panic, but this is, a, this is something for all of us, and it is so timely. I feel remiss if I don't at least give you some space uh, to, to talk about it. I think it's so important. In fact, we just had, what, what just happened in the House, right, a couple of days ago? Right. We just had, we just had this resolution uh, initially condemning anti-Semitism, which then came to condemn all forms of hatred. But Ian, also, as you were just speaking, I realized there's also, you know, one of the things that I've learned so much from you is, is about using the Enneagram for both self-improvement and as a tool for leadership within my organization. And I realize anti-Semitism has a deep psychological component to it as well. There's, there's, I mean, it, there's religion, there's philosophy, there's sociology, but there's also a deep psychological component that uh, that we can unpack later as well. And it's something that you know we, we can look inside ourselves, and perhaps where we fit on the Enneagram may help us understand certain beliefs we might have. Absolutely, and this, of course, your dad was a psychiatrist, and you know I. Uh, you know, I have a deep love for Carl Jung, uh, a tremendous influence on my life. And uh, if we don't get to it, people should at some point read about the shadow and, yes. and how uh, so many of our projections are, uh, they emerge from our shadow. Pieces of ourselves we don't own or want to own, we tend to use uh, in the form of scapegoating. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when uh, when the collective shadow goes bad and people uh, in on mass start to scapegoat out of their unacknowledged shadows, that's where we get things like anti-Semitism, racism of all kinds, sexism, homophobia. I mean, all this material ends up getting externalized instead of our dealing with it directly and using it as a way to avoid the problems within our group. And it gives us a sense of unity. Instead of, you know, uh, dealing with the fact that we too are fractured, and but we don't want to address it. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's it's just right on. It's the, the, the shadow side of us can take forms of discrimination, and we're all guilty of it in one way or another. And, uh, and, and in many ways, that has come out against the Jews throughout history. Okay, so here's a couple of questions I have, okay? So, you know, one has to ask, right? One has to ask the question, you know, why the Jews? You know what I mean? Like, in other words, why not the Irish? Well, you know, why, right. why, you know, why not, you know, uh, the, you know, the Balinese? What, what is it about Jews that, the, that you know, for lack of a, this is going to be a terrible way of saying it, but what right. is the magnet um, right. that draws people toward anti-Semitism in, in such a large way, large scale way? Well, I think part of it is Jews have always been a minority everywhere throughout history. I mean, even you know, in, in the Bible, in, in Exodus 1, they were a small people who, who were journeyed to Egypt. So Jews have always been a minority, and minorities are often blamed for society's problems. So that's part of it. There's also simply the history of the church. I mean, I have several chapters in the book talking about, I mean, the, 
one of the great miracles of the 20th century is the reconciliation between Jews and Christians, which has been just nothing short of miraculous, how the relationship between Jews and Christians. But for the 1900 years preceding the 20th century, it was awful. And so you had um, Jews were a scapegoat in many – throughout the church um, for a variety of reasons, perhaps sort of like the, the older brother syndrome that the church emerged out of Judaism and Jews were targeted. People like Augustine and Martin Luther saw Jews as really almost symbols of the devil, the, the, the people that bring all the, the worst aspects of, of life into the world. So some of it was religious, some of it political, also – for a long time, Christians were not allowed to lend money, and Jews were allowed to lend money, and so the church would actually encourage Jewish merchants. Jews weren't allowed to own land, so Jews became money lenders almost by by force, by, by the realities of history and by, and by Christian law. And when an economy has a tough time, who do they blame? The bankers and the lenders. So Jews were both economically targeted and religiously targeted, uh, and so that really just – that pattern repeated itself for a thousand years. Mm. So my question is, you know, we – I mean I'd like to think we're becoming uh, increasingly enlightened or, or, or uh, people who are living in a more – you know, a civilized, self-aware age, but apparently not because, you know, we see it in Europe, we see it in the United States. Why is anti-Semitism on the rise now? Well, I think we live in a very confusing time. I mean, one of the beauties of the Enneagram is it helps us make sense of the world around us and the people around us. And we're all confused and anxious. I mean, I think back I've been at the same synagogue where I've been leading for 10 years. Mm. And I look back at the challenges that I had 10 years ago and the kind of world that I started at the synagogue in 2009, it's completely changed. Life moves so fast. The world is becoming so global. I mean, people, when, when my kids were born, I have a 12-year-old 12, 12 and a 10-year-old. I didn't think they'd be spending all day staring into little phone screens, and that's what they do, unfortunately. I should be doing more to stop them. But I didn't, I didn't picture that. The world has changed so immensely. And in times of change and confusion, I think we look for some kind of stability. We look for ways of explaining our confusion. And Jews are often targeted in that it, during, during these kinds of times. And you know that's part of it. Another part is simply the reality of what's happening in the Middle East. There's a lot of instability. There was tension between the United States and Israel for a long time. There's tension between Israel and its neighbors. So, you know, there, there's just different forces that have that have made this ancient hatred more alive again. Mm. All right. So let's get down to brass tacks. What do we got to do to begin to unwind and reverse the momentum? of anti-Semitism in, in the world? Because I, I just, you know, how do we do it? Well, I think one thing is to just be more aware of it. I mean, the truth is, uh, there. when I wrote my first book, What Every uh, Christian Needs to Know About the Jewishness of Jesus, I recognized that there was a lot of sort of old stereotypes within the church, you know, that Jews killed Jesus and, you know, Jews Jews did certain practices. You know, there was a long time people believed that, you know, matzah was made from the blood of Christian children. I mean, this, this stereotype proceeded into the 20th century. Uh, so there was a lot of just sort of misunderstanding. So I think just understanding the history of anti-Semitism is one big point. Speaking out against it, calling it out when we see it. Uh, and I think that's, that's happening right now in the news. Uh, also, interfaith partnerships. I mean, one of the great 
benefits, joys. I mean, you kindly introduced me as your rabbi, and I'm just so honored by that. And I've I, I've been able to have relationship with with pastors and imams that are just really rich and deep. I think that's a big part of it. Also, uh, my dad, who you mentioned is a psychiatrist, just wrote a book on Islamophobia. So I actually think fighting Islamophobia, fighting other forms of hatred is actually good for fighting anti-Semitism as well. So really trying to create a society where we honor differences, just like we honor different numbers of the Enneagram. One number is not better than the other. They're different, and that difference enriches us. I think the same thing is true with religion, and we have to kind of get back to that model. Mm. Well, if we get time, toward the end of the show, let's let's revisit the, the collective shadow, because I think every number on the Enneagram, if they want to experience genuinely deep transformation, have to do shadow work. And it's hard work. Man, oh. we don't want it. Sometimes we don't want to acknowledge that part of ourselves. You know, we, we want to, we, we all want to think of ourselves as great, good, moral human beings. And truth is, we have to acknowledge, in, in, in Hebrew, it's called the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. Oh. And, and the evil inclination is a part of all of us. In fact, I mean, God created us with the Yetzer Hatov, the good inclination, and the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. And we wouldn't be fully human without both of them. Oh my gosh. I, I, I could argue or make a case or, an ex, or we could explore together what those two terms mean through the lens of each Enneagram type, right? So if not now, in another show. Love that. Yes. A, right. Absolutely. Okay. So um, I want to ask you about the rise of extremism in the world. Before we go into the Enneagram, what, what do you think just in general? I mean, it's not just extremism you know, as it regards uh, anti-Semitism or, you know, there's extremism just seems to be the the language of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of it is is the kind of confusion that we see around us. I remember reading a book about 20 years ago called Jihad versus McWorld. And it was a, a sort of a, a, a the, the idea was that the more global a society becomes, the more extremist certain elements become as well as a kind of reaction to this global society. So I think we're seeing some of that come out, that that extremism is a way of making sense of a changing world. Um, so I think that's part of it. Also, with social media, extreme voices are often elevated. They get more attention. They stand out. I mean, you know, even, even in, in certain marketing, we're told, you know, you want to make a strong case. You want to be extreme in your language because that gets attention. So I think that that's a big part of it. Um, extremist voices gain attention. And um, some of it also has to do, I mean, this is maybe getting a little too political or economic, but there's such a growing divide between rich and poor. Uh, and and I think that there there's pe- people who lash out against that. We're living in this sort of increasingly stratified society. And so I think extremism is just a way of reacting to it. Um, and again, you know, Jews are often the first, you know, if you look up scapegoat, you might just see a picture of a Jewish person because mm-hmm. Jews have always been a scapegoat. So I think yeah. that – that rise of extremism also leads to a rise of anti-Semitism. Mm. Absolutely. And I think we, we, you know, beyond just the, the Jewish people, right, uh, every, there's a, there, there are numerous targets for, uh, for people who are anxious and are doing a lot of projecting uh, to, for, toward gay people, toward uh, black people, toward people of, you know, I mean, it just doesn't, 
it doesn't matter. People become targets. And yeah. I think one of the beauties of the Enneagram is it, it helps us, you know, become more self-aware uh, yes. to, to own our dark side and to begin to live with, with just more compassion. And as I just mentioned earlier, appreciation for difference. So I want to encourage everybody, everybody, everybody to buy uh, Evan's book, First the Jews Combating the World's Longest Running Hate Campaign, because I, I have not read it yet because I haven't had a chance, but I'm going to because I, I think this is such a timely and important topic. Thank you. Ian, would you say that that you have to own your dark side, the shadow side, before you can really be fully human and aware? Yes. Yeah. That's what I, I thought. Yeah, I, I really do. I feel like um, – without facing your shadow, you literally live in a state of disintegration. And now mm. the, the root word integrity comes from integritas, meaning wholeness. Uh, maybe another word would be shalom, right? If, yeah. if, we, if we can think of the word, is, is that fair to say that wholeness and shalom fit together? 100, not even just, it, it's not even theoretical. The word shalom comes from the word shalem, le shalem, which means to complete, to make whole. So absolutely, wholeness and shalom are the same thing. So as long as you have material uh, parts of yourself that you despise, that uh, you throw into the shadow, and it's autonomous, it then has free reign to do whatever it wants uh, in your unconscious world. And that, then you start to behave in ways that you can't understand. And then, God forbid, it, it falls into a whole group of people that in the, in the collective begins to do groupthink, right? Mm, and, and, yes. then, and then the shadow becomes projected outwardly instead of everybody's – because they're afraid of going into the shadow and owning what's there and making peace with it. Mm. Right. Right. Making right. shalom with the shadow. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And anyway, so I'm this is a to topic I'm very, very passionate mm -hmm. about, because I think, as you said, that until every type goes into the shadow, faces its passion, faces its dark side, faces its beauty, which and that's often hidden in the shadow. Right. So we right. have to, you know, go in there. It's a part of the journey. But as Jung said, a person who hasn't passed through the furnace of their passions you know, uh, hasn't done their work. And, right. and my, one of my favorite Jung quotes, of course, and this is amazing. He says, what you most need to know can be found in the place you least want to look. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. 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 That, that, that you have to go, you have to go to that place where you feel the most resistance. Yep. And when you go there. Yeah. I like that. That that could be a good book, Making Peace with the Dark Side. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, of course, every great hero story is all about it, whether Luke has to go see Darth Vader right. or, you know, uh, Odysseus, you know, Odysseus has to go and, and, and walk through you know, actually a series of encounters with the shadow. And Dante, yeah. Dante you know, uh, has to go ha through hell. Has to go. Yeah. I mean, we this is how we become whole. And, right. and, uh, but it takes a great deal of courage for every type to do that. So you're an Enneagram three. Yes. Um, what I'm curious to know is how does this rise in anti-Semitism and extremism, how does it affect you as a three? Well, I've thought a lot about it and I think as a three, I'm always looking forward. I'm always looking at progress. And I think part of that is also, I'm just a generally, optimistic, happy guy. I think maybe that goes together with threes. I'm always trying to to improve and grow and believe in that. 
And I kind of think when I think about anti-Semitism, I feel angry because it feels like we've gone backwards. Mm. You know, when I when I was ordained as a rabbi in 2006 uh, and when I grew up, you know, went to college in the 90s, it, it was a great time. I, I didn't experience any anti-Semitism, really. I mean, maybe I grew up a little bit too protected, but I didn't I didn't experience anti-Semitism at all. Nobody talked about it. And then over the last three to four years, I hear it everywhere. I see it everywhere. People come to me. I saw it in 2015, 2016. So as a three, I just feel increasingly disappointed and pessimistic and it's kind of shattering my my way of looking at the world. Mm. Now, threes go to the low side of nine when they're in stress, right? Which means yeah. that they, they kind of can become depressed. They can, you know, uh, begin to not practice self-care. They lose confidence. Uh, they can narcotize like a nine can do in a bad space. They can lay on the couch, grab the remote, uh, check out, uh, and and sort of withdraw and, and, and just lose all that characteristic optimism and forward thinking. Have you had that experience? Yes. Yes. I've gone, definitely gone through that a few times um, uh, where just felt totally turned off uh, uh, I remember, I remember participating in a, uh, a, a march. It was, it was a civil rights kind of march in, I think it was 2016, I think. And I remember it was walking together with, with, a, with another person and the person was just saying almost, I don't think he was aware of it, but the comments were so anti-Semitic. It was sort of about Jewish power and what Jews had done throughout history. And this was a person I was marching with as part of a, uh, a social justice gathering. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, here's somebody who I respect or at least thought I should respect uh, and is saying these kind of things. And I remember just the plane ride back and then the next few days just feeling so out of sorts that these kind of views that I thought were outside the mainstream are now being spouted by people that I respect. So definitely have gone to that dark place. And then when you try to have meaningful dialogue, you sometimes feel like, did the person hear anything I said? So that that's definitely gotten me down. Mm, so how do you pull, how do threes pull themselves out of the spiral of the going to the low side of nine and stress? Well, you say, I'm going to write a book and everybody's going to read that book and they'll learn everything they need to know. That's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. right because, because threes are experts at, at, at spinning either real or perceived failure into a success somehow, right? Absolutely. This is going to be the topic of my next book. I mean, it, it is kind of true because I really started thinking about this book, even though it was just published in, you know, here in 2019. I started thinking about it in 2015. I'm like, well, I'm seeing this, so I'm going to have to teach everybody and I'm going to have to get everybody more aware of this, you know? And and actually, when I first started talking about the, the, the book with my publisher, they're like, well, I'm not sure there's so much interest in this. It's not that big a topic. Now, of course, it's huge, but it, it, it really, I, I really did believe, and I still do, that doing more education, speaking out about it. I mean, it's interesting. As I've as I've been promoting the book, as, as you know, you kind of have to do, I've been on shows that were ultra conservative and shows that were ultra liberal. And, and I'm kind of trying to give the same kind of message. So I do feel like I'm, I'm making some sort of a dent. Um, uh, it's almost like 10 steps forward, nine steps back. But I do think this was part of my way of, of, of restoring a little bit of optimism. 
to, right. to write this book. Oh, I love that because you're also describing where a six goes, a nine goes when, I mean, a three, gosh, let me get my numbers right here. <laughs> where a three goes when they're healthy, which is to the high side of six. And one of that things is, is building community, forging alliances, which is what you're so brilliant at, which is how do I forge alliances with uh, people of other faiths uh, so that we can create a more harmonious and, and better world. And so you're really a living exemplar of what it means to be a healthy three, which is I'm a doer. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to do it. And uh, it's not about my success per se, although in your worst moments, it probably is. Of course. Right. But in your best moments, it's in service, not to your own success, but to the success of all. Yeah. I think that's so true. And it, it does feel that way. I remember, um, well, first of all, I, I do kind of, maybe this is, this somewhat falls as a three, but I'm generally optimistic. I try to think the best of most human beings. And I do think most people don't want to hate other people. And I think we all have a shadow side, of course, but within the, the, the in Judaism, the Yetzer Hatov, the good, the good inclination can, with the right sublimation, as Freud would say, the, the, the Yetzer Hara can fuel the Yetzer Hatov, the, the good inclination. So I think with education, people can be better and people do want to improve. So that gives me hope. And also, I, I do think, I, I remember being interviewed on a, on a radio program and it was going on and on. And, you know, this was sort of a smaller radio program. So I was like, Ugh, why am I spending so much time doing this? And I was thinking to myself, you know, I have to, I have to educate. I have to be there. This is not about me. This is not about selling more books and all this. This is about really trying to get a message out there that I don't hear being said that, um, you know, this is a spiritual issue. Anti-Semitism is something we all have to be more aware of and educated about as as Americans, as Christians, as Jews. This is something we have to stand up against. And that that kind of larger message has kept me going. So uh, one of my favorite autobiographies of all time is Elie Wiesel's book, All Rivers Run to the Sea, mm, right? Mm. It's a, f if you if folks, if you have never read All Rivers Run to the Sea, you are, are really missing out. I encourage you to read it. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. And I, I have great admiration uh, for the now uh, deceased Elie Wiesel, Nobel Prize winner, Auschwitz survivor, uh, just an amazing human being. He, he, he had that, of course, that really we're now famous quote god made man because he loves stories mm, mm. tell me what that means from from the jewish perspective like that that that's clearly embedded you know uh the idea of story in the jewish the importance of story tell me tell me about that life is story the way we understand our lives as we, we we see them as a story our history is story i mean and and what Elie Wiesel, Elie Wiesel came out of the Hasidic religious tradition, uh, which was a, a movement that started in Eastern Europe in the 18th century. And what the Hasidic rebbies, their rabbis did, was they taught through story. They were reaction to the very strict Litvak rabbis who taught through laws. And they said, this is what you have to do. And they were very logical. And the Hasid said, let's tell stories. Stories reveal what we should do and what we should believe, believe and how to live. And so Elie Wiesel took that idea of, of, of the storyteller and brought it to the world. And I think he was right. I mean, whenever I give a sermon, I imagine this was true with you. Nobody remembers the actual point that I made. They remember the story that I Absolutely. told. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
in your work, and you've said this to me before, but it's, I mean, it's in your bio as well, and I want to just talk to you about it. It says in your bio that you love and find joy in helping people of all faiths live a better story. What does that mean? To me, it means that we understand the significance of our lives, uh, that, that as a rabbi, I mean, I can teach people beliefs and practices and traditions, and that's inc- incredibly important. But I think if we don't see the meaning and the purpose of what we do, if we don't see it as helping us become better husband or wife or father or teacher, if we don't see our religious practices and traditions as part of living a better story, of living a better life, then then we're not going to keep embracing it. Hmm. Then we're not going to really see why it's important. I mean, w- w- there are certain people, and they're very traditionalists, that say, this is what God says I have to do. I must do it. I don't care whether it helps me or I like it or don't like it. That's what I do. But I'm, I think, operating in a little bit of a more kind of non-Orthodox setting in which people need to see the value of religious and spiritual practices and expression in their lives. So I want to show them through sermons, through teaching, how to li- how it helps us all live a better story. How it, how it helps me, how it helps my congregation, um, and that's why that's why I write books. And I believe that Jewish wisdom can help everybody live a better story. I agree. People of all faiths, you know, what, what's that? There was a famous commercial. You don't have to be Jewish to love uh, uh, rye bread, something like that. It was a certain <laughs> company's rye bread, you know. Yeah. And I, I think kind of you don't have to be Jewish to love Jewish wisdom, right. and so that that's why I write and speak. Yeah. Well, uh, it recently. Uh, I did a show on a narrative approach to the Enneagram, and really, it's gotten more uh, and faster response on social media than any other episode we've done. And this new book that I'm working on is sort of approaching the Enneagram from a from a story perspective. So my premise is the Enneagram traditionally has been understood as a personality typing system, but I would argue right. I would argue that it is as much about stories that people inhabit because we can't from childhood forward we we understand our lives narratively if we didn't uh, we would psychologically break apart. It's what gives us a sense of coherence and identity to have a story, right? Right. So I believe that in many ways, the most sacred question you can ask somebody, apart from being a cheesy pickup line, is what's your story? I mean, that's an mm. amazing thing. So for you as a three, for threes in general, what's your story? Well, oh, that's a tough question because my when I think about my story— I often think, at least initially, that it was just always up and growing and always making progress, always moving forward, you know? Uh, Went to high school, went to a great university, did well, went to rabbinical school. And then the traditional story in the rabbinate, I don't know if this was as true in in the world of being a minister, but you start as as an assistant rabbi at a large congregation. Then you go to your own small congregation. Then when you're about 45, you go to your mega large congregation and you're the leader of this of this great community. And that was how I saw my story initially, you know, this sort of upward. But, you know, as happens in life, um, ran into, you know, personal doubts when I was in my 30s and, and you know, became a parent and had issues, you know, with, with you know, the health of my children. And, you know, the, the, the story kept changing. And I think the kind of consistency in that story was always just kind of growing. And maybe that's where my three is. But the kind of arc of my 
of my professional and personal story um, has not turned out the way I thought it would turn out. Um, but in a way, it's turned out better, I think, mm. or, or at least at least that's my three talking that it's turned out how it's supposed to be turned out. And and I love thinking of my life in that way, um, because I think we human beings we're meant to think in story. I don't think we think logically. I think it's almost, you know, when we talk about story, I think it's hardwired into us. I don't even think we have control over it. Absolutely Our life true. is a story. Absolutely and true. so making sense of that story is, is what I'm constantly doing and what the Enneagram helps with immensely. Mm. I love what you said, too, about what you've learned as you've gotten older. I think, again, about Carl Jung's haunting uh, quote where he says that, you know, Growth happens as a result of repeated humiliations to the ego. Mm. Isn't that true? I mean, you know, I think about that, you know, as a, as a parent, too, all the time. Like, I want to protect my kids. I don't want them to suffer like any parent. But then you also think, you know what? They're going to have experiences. They're going to have setbacks. And that's the only way they're going to grow. I would like to protect them from that if I can. But at the same time, I don't want to protect them from that because that's how they grow. And it's that's that's a constant tension. I mean, my, my wife and I talk about it all the time. Mm. Um, how, how do we help them live their story and how do we help them learn and grow? So Richard Rohr, a friend of mine, he's a Catholic priest. He has a, a great line. He says, spirituality, the word spirituality is about what you do with your suffering. And I think mm. that, I just think that's such a, a rich idea. So for you, as a three on the Enneagram, I think there's a good story and there's a bad story, right? Uh, now, this can come out of your own experience or your observation of threes in general, but what was the premise? I mean, growing up, you have a psychiatrist father. Was your mom a big achiever too? I can't remember. Sure. She was a teacher, you know, and she had a big practice. She, she tutored students at our home. Okay. So you grew up with two successful parents. We all receive, you know, uh, a boatload of real and perceived messages growing up. As a three, what message did you pick up from your parents or in the emotional atmosphere of your home that you think contributed to your becoming a three? I think one of the messages that I, that I received was, you're really smart, so you better do something good with that. Or, which, which was or, interesting. Okay, or what? Uh -huh. Or what? Well... Or you're not really you're you're not really doing what you're supposed to do. You're not living up to you're you're not living up to your ability. That that you should live up to you should succeed because you're able to succeed. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess or what I never felt I never felt that I wouldn't be loved by it. I felt I would sort of be a disappointment though. That was mm. sort of the feeling that if I didn't if I didn't succeed I would be I, I would be a disappointment. Not that I would. Not, not that no one would love me anymore, but that, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really doing what I was meant to do. But of course, I mean, I think the message we all hear growing up very early is, is that love is conditional. And now that may not be true, but I do think that the child's mind, which thinks in black and white, non-abstract right. terms, does think to itself, man, if I don't succeed, I will be unworthy of love and relationship. For sure. Right. That in some ways that's kind of unconscious that maybe I can intellectualize that, you know, as a parent, of course, I say you love unconditionally, but the way we experience that love is always somewhat conditional. I, I definitely can understand that. Yeah. Well, it's really important, I think, for every type to understand mm -hmm. the premise, the unconscious premise 
of their old story, or maybe they're still living in it. Frankly, I think most people are still living in a child, in a children's book, in 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 the in a in an old arcane story with a with an old uh, you know script, right? They're reading from mm-hmm. an old script, and then they wonder, hey, why is it that I keep repeating? These, these behaviors as a one, as a five, as a two, as a three, as a seven, that just seem to be not in service to my best interests, right? So for, right. So for example, a one thinks to themselves, you know, unless I'm perfect, I can't be loved. A two, a two thinks to themselves, unless I help people uh, and meet everybody's needs, I can't be loved. A three, if I'm not successful or work very hard, I won't be loved. A four would be, if I'm not special and unique, uh, I won't be able to compensate for my fatal flaw and be loved. Uh, fives would be, you know, unless I can swallow up as much knowledge as I can, I won't be able to fend off an overwhelming world that's very frightening. Uh, a seven or six would say, you know, uh, I can't trust my internal uh, ability to make decisions. I don't have a very strong inner compass. Therefore, I have to rely or look outside myself in order to get security and fend off my fear. Uh, a mm. seven would say, I can't rely on other people in order, you know, to uh, get through difficult emotions, I then have to create a neverland where everything is about happiness and uh, exciting future adventures to stave off my anxiety. Eights would be we live in a world in, in which, you know, people who are weak get betrayed and hurt. Therefore, I have to hide my weakness and vulnerability. And of course, nines would be, you know, uh, my my voice and my opinions and my desires don't matter. So therefore I have to uh, defer or accommodate everybody else's. Now I just went through all that because I just wanted, beautiful. I just wanted every single type to know, listen, though, those are, if those, if those things are still the premise of your story, if those unconscious beliefs are still running underneath the surface of your awareness, then you're living in the wrong story. There's a better mm. story. There is a better story for you. Hmm. So true. Yeah, we, uh, you know, and I find myself, I guess, sometimes relapsing to my old store. I get, you know, it's sort of, I sometimes a, a, a fellow rabbi will call me up and say, hey, did you see this big synagogue? Like there was one in Dallas or one in Houston looking for a rabbi. You should look at it. And I think to myself, that's, that's not what I want. But then I go and look at it and start reading the job description. So, oh, I could be really interesting. That might be, oh, how influential would I be in that in that place? Oh, I'd get a lot of attention. It is. It's 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 it that the it, the story. I sometimes feel I'm living my old story. Yeah. Well, of course, it's compulsive, isn't it? It has an addictive yes. quality. It has an addictive quality, and it's reflexive. And if you don't have self awareness, you might go take that job. That's right. Right. That's right. So this is why yeah. it, this is why it's so important for us to do our work. Right. All right. So mm-hmm. I, I got to close, but I want to read you something uh, that has has deeply moved me. And actually, Anthony will remember. I actually uh, we have a little group of guys that gets together. It's it changes all the time. We meet on my porch. Uh, I feed everybody expensive bourbon because I'm in recovery, but I get to watch and maybe drive them home. Uh, and then uh, we smoke expensive cigars and. You know, mostly nice. mostly it's light light conversation. But at some moment, I'll always ask a question uh, of the group uh, that I you know I don't want to like turn it into group therapy. But as a therapist, I can't resist, right? So I once read them Ellie Wiesel Ellie Wiesel's Nobel Peace Prize speech. Mm. Now, if everybody listen to me, anybody who's listening to me, if you have never read Ellie Wiesel's Nobel Prize speech, you are missing a gem of writing. It is exquisitely written. 
and he he po- and it's for everybody. It is so moving. It is so moving. And I just want to read a section of it to close. Um, <clears throat> he's talking about uh, as a as a young boy his first night in Auschwitz, right? And he he writes this. I remember it happened yesterday or eternities ago. A young Jewish boy discovered the kingdom of night. I remember his bewilderment. I remember his anguish. It all happened so fast. The ghetto, the deportation, the sealed cattle car, the fiery altar upon which the history of our people and the future of mankind were meant to be sacrificed. I remember he asked his father, can this be true? This is the 20th century, not the Middle Ages. Who would allow such crimes to be committed? How could the world remain silent? Mm. Mm. Now, toward the end of it, he circles back. So that's toward the, the middle, beginning and middle of, of his speech. And then he asks this, he says this, and this, this just kills me. He says, and now the boy is turning to me. Tell me, he asks, what have you done with my future? What have you done with your life? Mm. Wow. Isn't that the question we all have to ask ourselves? What have you done with your life? You know, and I think about Elie Wiesel. One of the things that he said was, I think he said, indifference is the root. I think he said the opposite of hate is not love. The opposite of, uh, uh, or the opposite of love, love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. I think that's what he said. Mm. And that that was a motivating quote for me in thinking about anti-Semitism, that if we if we are indifferent to expressions of hatred, be it against Jews, be it against African-Americans, be it against any group, then we're in a sense participating in it. We can't be indifferent. Mm. And that really is a was a motivating quote for me in writing this uh, book. OK, so in closing, let me say this and encourage my people on this. You know, people tend to think that the Enneagram is just about inner work, and I don't, mm. I don't believe that's true. Uh, on, well, on one level, yes, uh, we have to do our inner work, but it's in service to learning how to love and improve the world and, and make the world a better. It's not, it's not all about me, right? It's not a narcissistic exercise. And I think that every single number on the Enneagram represents a characteristic of the nature of God and that each type— has a important contribution to make uh, in the realm of social justice, right? So if, mm. you know, ones embody goodness and they can use their ability to improve anything to improve the world, twos embody the love of God. And when, they, when, that, when that love is not being used to uh, prop up their own ego, they, they, can, they can apply it toward loving others and showing us how to love others. For threes, these doers, these, these producers can show us how to move from the world of fantasy to the, the world of action. Fours can, can create beautiful things and, and transport great spiritual truths and human truths to others through creative work. Fives can take their gift for wisdom, God's wisdom, to create knowledge for us and and books for us and work for us that can can uh, elevate us and and help us to uh, become self-knowledgeable that we might you know work towards the ends of social justice for sixes forging alliances for for sevens who represent I think the joy of God can remind us of how valuable 
life is and how it has to be protected and defended. Eights, of course, it's it's so obvious, right? Uh, eights would I would say are the people who represent the power and the justice of God. And man, when a when a Martin Luther King or an Elie Wiesel, I'm not sure if he was an eight. I don't think so, but you know, he maybe he was. I have no idea. But man, when you direct that correctly, it's fantastic. And of course, nines you. You remind us of the peace of God and all of those gifts can be used in service to overcoming anti-Semitism and, and in all realms of, of human life, bringing justice and peace and harmony and shalom to the world in which we live. Thank you, Ian. That's what a beautiful way to think about it, that the Enneagram can help us bring that shalom. And thank thank you for your friendship and, uh, and your teaching. I'm so grateful. Well... You know how I feel about you, Rabbi. You know what I'm saying. You, you, yeah. You, you bring a great deal of joy to to my life, and uh, just knowing that you're out in the world. We don't talk as as much as I'd like, but it's just always a comfort to know that people like you and others like you are out there. Uh, you know, uh, kicking back at the darkness. Thank you. Yeah. Peace and love to you, my friend. Peace to you too. Talk to you soon. And remember, my friends, in the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken.